Welcome to the Co-op Power Hour on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider, a scholar in residence of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, and I'm joined today by my co-host Amy Lynn Herman. Hi everybody, this is Amy. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month to learn about economic democracy and cooperative business. The Co-op Power Hour is a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle, which you can learn more about at our website, coloradocoops.info. Today we're talking about housing cooperatives, and we're glad to be joined by Christina Gosnell and Zane Selvins of the Boulder Community Housing Association and the Boulder Housing Coalition. They've been leaders in our community in helping make uh, Boulder safe for housing cooperatives. Uh, they've been leading a really inspiring effort in order to do that, uh, achieving legislative wins and uh, building uh, strong organizations to create housing uh, that's affordable and uh, uh, community-driven. Uh, you know, I first encountered what they were doing when I moved to Boulder uh, two years ago. Uh, the first city council meeting that I went to was one where uh, uh, occupancy limits were being discussed, and the place was packed. It was packed with young people who were coming up one after another all night long, sharing their stories of, uh, of, of living in community, uh, uh, which in many cases they were doing uh, against the law because they had to. It was kind of an act of desperation. And they were uh, clamoring for uh, the right and the opportunity uh, to live uh, affordably and in community. It reminded me of my own experience when I was in college. And I lived in a housing cooperative for uh, a little while. And it was there that I saw a really different way of living. Uh, it enabled me to access housing more affordably. Uh, it taught me how to cook. It taught me uh, a different relationship with food and with community. Uh, than I'd ever had before. And it's an education that stuck with me. And I think that educational role is so important. Uh, uh, when people come together in a cooperative, they own and govern their own resources. Uh, they participate in the management, uh, in this case, of their homes and of their meals uh, in a way that otherwise they couldn't. Um, and it opens up opportunities for the community as well, creating spaces for organizing, uh, uh, for, for art, for creativity, um, and often these cooperatives end up becoming leaders uh, in their communities. So I want to start uh, uh, by turning to, to Zane and Christina and asking, how did you get involved in this effort? Uh, how did you first encounter cooperative housing and why did it matter enough to you uh, that, it, uh, that you've poured yourself so much into these efforts? Um, how did I first encounter cooperative housing? I mean, I, I lived in some relatively in, informal kind of shared housing arrangements during college, and I liked it a lot. Uh, and then after finishing school, I ended up living by myself very briefly and hated it. Uh, and so had, you know, just a personal kind of social motivation to want to get back into a shared living arrangement of some kind. And when I eventually came to Boulder for graduate school in 2002. Um, there was one housing co-op in town, uh, and I met some of the people that lived in it in the kind of organizing that was going on around the food co-op, which was being started at that time as well, the Boulder Cooperative Market. And uh, I ended up on the board of the Boulder Housing Coalition back in 2004, 2005, and that was really motivated by the desire for community, for wanting to like live in a more intentional way and share daily life with, you know, a dozen other people. And that just felt good to me. And I'm a bit of an introvert, so it was a way to kind of have constant social interaction without needing to put in a lot of work uh, to do it, which, you know, for me, that was nice. And then over time, I, uh, I've ended up working on climate and sustainability and energy issues in a policy context. Uh, and cooperative living, shared space, shared resources, it turns out is a very, very economical, but also, you know, kind of resource efficient way to live. And so that was kind of the second thing that uh, I found inspiring about cooperative shared housing arrangements. And then over the last few years, as the housing affordability crisis has intensified in Boulder and also many other kind of economically vibrant cities in the U.S., it's really been clear to me that allowing people to share 
is a huge means of economic empowerment. And so these three kind of things all together have made me pretty passionate about making this something that's available to more people if they want it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I, I first got introduced to housing co-ops, uh, really, or first got interested in them really when I I had just graduated college and a good friend um, had moved back to Boulder and she moved directly into one of the like underground housing co-ops, the Raj Collective, and they, I ended up, I was in a bunch of transition at the time, like every, you know, this is a college town, lots of people leave. I was really excited about staying here because I really like it here. Um, and I work on climate and energy issues, so it's it very, for that, this is a very good town for me. Um, and. Yeah, and I found this, like, wonderful group of humans who were really inspiring and living in a way that was much more affordable, which was attractive to me because I was a recent undergrad who, a recent a graduate that had lost her student job. Um, and yeah, and I, I recognize that, like, I don't, I can actually reduce my, um, need to go get uh, some high paying or something paying job um, and do things that I care about more. I, I, would have the, I had the ability with that, with moving into a housing co-op and so I, I ended up interacting with the Radish Collective and uh, through that met a group of folks and started another um, co-op called the Beat Collective and um, yeah, pretty immediately. I, so I have already, I've always lived um, in Boulder with a bunch of different, uh, with roommates, because that's the only way that I've been able to afford to, that was the only way I was able to afford to go to college, really. Um, and, and that's, I, I, I knew about the occupancy limits from when I first got here, because I'm a code nerd or something, I don't really know. Um, but I, you know, I recognize, like, this is the only way I'm going to be able to be here uh, economically. And so, when I moved into the housing co-op there, I met all of these people who were so excited about the possibility and potential to legalize um, shared living in general. And I was actually working uh, with one of my good friends. We had started a free school and, you know, it was just like a very relaxed free school. We had taught class, taught things, learned things, whatever. Uh, it was very fun. And f it was the election season a few cycles ago and um, we ended up hosting a uh we were we were gonna host a it was an good i mean issues forum just like to folk gather and share information about what's on the ballot and who's running and that kind of jazz and my friend cha-cha she ended up asking one of one or two of the city council people that were running to come and they were like yeah i'll come to this and then we ended up just like turning it into a candidate forum so that we held in the living room of the radish collective with, you know, murals everywhere. And it was, it was a beautiful uh, experience, but we were able to ask them questions about like the, all of these candidates, like, do you, you're in the middle, of, you're in the living room of uh, an illegal housing co-op. Like, do you want to legalize this? And they like pretty much down the line, they were like, yeah, that, that this, this is pretty cool. And that really inspired us to um, take the next step and turn it into a campaign. And so at the root of this was a, uh, a rule against over what what were considered mm -hmm. over occupied houses, um, why did you end up rather than just targeting occupancy limits, yeah. uh, particularly working to legalize co-ops? What makes co-ops a strategy um, for uh, uh, for enabling community housing? <laughs> this is an interesting question uh, because when we when we first gathered the the group of us to like really work on a campaign. We, we wanted to do both or either, you know, we, we were really after occupancy. Um, and it quickly became clear to us that uh, occupancy was a longer battle and co-ops were more palatable. And it was a long discussion internally about, you know, is it actually okay that we're shifting to co-ops? Um, Why would they be more palatable? Well, so occupancy, if so right now the law is in most of the city, you can only have three unrelated people in a house, no matter how large the house is. In the quote unquote high density areas, you can have up to four, but mostly those are apartments. And if you got rid of that rule, it would be a sweeping change. You'd, you know, suddenly in any big house in the city, you'd be able to have as many people as can safely live there, which is, it turns out, quite a lot under the code. Um, so that would be a big change. 
And the occupancy limits have a long history um, tied to students in the, the late 60s in, in Boulder and other communal living arrangements and University Hill and blah, blah, blah. Um, Co-ops are a much more kind of focused thing. They're a specific kind of living together. Honestly, it's never going to be tens of thousands of people in Boulder living in co-ops, much though I might like that. Uh, so it was just, it was a matter of scope and kind of political pragmatism, I think, to be like, mm -hmm. look, yes, the occupancy limits are wrong. However, um, what can we get right now, uh, potentially? And we ended up focusing on co-ops because it seemed like something we could get. And this was actually a really hard decision for the group of people mm -hmm. that was working on this, because some people were like, no, we have to do the real thing or nothing at all. And you know, some of us were like, uh, but then maybe we get nothing at all. And you know, to be fair, you said that the occupancy would have a sleeping change. And I think that in some ways it would, and in some ways it would just bring all of the people that are currently living illegally out of the shadows and able to talk to their landlord and not freak out when the plumbing goes wrong in their house and they have to move a roommate out and all that kind of jazz. So it would be a sweeping change in terms of uh, allowing people to exist freely in their own space. But it, it, it is a, it's a bigger change um, mm. and it would affect more people. So And the, the co-ops enabled, the co-op structure um, enabled you to craft the, the rules in such mm -hmm. a way that where there would be some accountability, right? You know, where you're able mm -hmm. to address some of the some of the concerns around impacts yeah, totally and you know we got a we ended up getting an ordinance passed after three or four years of advocacy yeah. um a very intensive <laughs> advocacy and the the ordinances i just checked it's 23 pages so there's a lot of built-in requirements and uh that you know a normal group of four or five people living together like just wouldn't feel like doing or wouldn't be able to do economically because it's also quite expensive. And we might, there was a pre-existing co-op ordinance on the books that had been passed in the mid-90s, kind of in the last round of co-op fervor in Boulder, <laughs> but it was, it was just not usable. It was not functional. It could not actually make co-ops. So what we've got now is still complicated and there's a lot of hoops to jump through, but it appears to actually be usable. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how many people want to take advantage of it and what what kind of communities we are able to kind of get out of it. I'm wondering if you will speak uh, more directly about what you think is very usable in the ordinance itself. <laughs> like what differentiates it from that earlier version, which just was not going to work? Sure. And also just what you have determined um, as a win for mm -hmm. the structures that you're pursuing in your individual uh, co-op living experiences. Well, I think one really vital thing that we got in the new ordinance is the allowed occupancy. So mm -hmm. the old ordinance, I think it maxed out at six or maybe eight people if yeah. you had a double lot, which nobody has. And the new ordinance, uh, you can have up to 12 people in the low density zones and up to 15 people in the medium and high density zones. And that's really a kind of a sweet spot for a co-op household. You know, when you've got five people, all the systems and governance that come along with running a cooperative household kind of feel overbearing. It's like too much work, too much overhead. But when you've got, you know, nine, 10, 12, 15 people, then it's like, oh, well, one, we need systems. Otherwise, this is not going to work. <laughs> and two, it doesn't feel like burdensome to, to work with those systems and develop them and have, you know, the kind of specialization of labor that makes the, the household run. So getting to, to have, you know, 10, 12, 15 people in a house, um, one, it makes it more affordable, more sustainable, um, but it also gets you to a size that really organizationally works for a cooperative household. And, you know, from the context of uh, what feels, I think you also asked what feels overburdensome or something like that. Um, yeah, I think I think generally this, as a whole, the individual pieces of the ordinance are mostly great. Um, there are a few pieces which I would love to scratch out of the ordinance, um, like the sleeping plan. Because, Tell me a little bit more about that. Um, so the sleeping plan is that it was a requirement that was added on at the very last moment. Um, along with the cap of 12 and or, fi or 15 in, in high density zones, um, there's, a, there's a cap for number of square foot, so number of people per square foot. So it's um, two or four, I always You need at least 200 square feet of yeah. habitable space per occupant. Per person. Um, and, and then at the very last moment, there was added on, like, we need a sleeping plan, um, which 
you know, the the intention there is great. It's like, are 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 we are we sure that you're all are going to be sleeping in safe spaces? Um, like, do you have egress windows, and is there good, uh, you know, is this actually a bedroom and that kind of jazz? That's like a wonderful intention, but the requirements that stem from that are are pretty arduous. You have to make a you have to make a floor plan of your house, which if you're moving into a rental situation, you you know, I, I, my house has had to literally measure every like nook and cranny of our house and draw it up in illustrator and you know it's just an arduous um mm. in terms of a time commitment requirement and if you if you don't have the skills to be able to do that you have to pay someone to go do that which is very expensive and the sec the on top of that it's also like that just feels wrong like if you're it's it's a requirement that you're that you're basically saying we don't we don't trust you to take care of yourself and uh, know where to exist in your spaces, um, so it's just a double, double whammy in terms of annoyance. No, it's a, it's a. There are a lot of details packed into this mm -hmm. ordinance, and and um, and they've they've all been hard fought. Um, but the point is, is now it's possible to create and legalize uh, mm -hmm. cooperative housing, affordable cooperative housing, in a way it wasn't. Yeah. And uh, that's an incredible uh, accomplishment, something, as you said, uh, Christina fought for over the course of years, organizing mm -hmm. with uh, communities, with, with residents, and working with uh, uh, local government. Uh, really a, a, an extraordinary campaign. Um, next, we're going to talk about where you are now and what kinds of challenges that you're facing. Uh, you're listening to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature on KG News' It's the Economy, a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. I'm Nathan Schneider, and I'm joined by Amy Lynn Herman. We'll be with you the fourth Thursday of every month. Today we're talking about housing cooperatives. Welcome back to the Co-op Power Hour, a regular feature on KGNU's It's the Economy and a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. I'm Nathan Schneider, and I'm joined by my co-host, Amy Lynn Herman. Hello. We'll be with you every uh, uh, fourth Thursday uh, of the month. And today we're talking about co-op housing, especially here in Boulder, where we've just had uh, a tremendous new uh, ordinance that enables uh, co-op housing uh, uh, in ways it wasn't possible before. And we're joined here by uh, uh, Zane Selvins and Christina Gosnell, who have been instrumental in this process. So um, in keeping with our conversation about what your lived experience have, experiences have been in co-ops, I'm curious if you'd be willing to speak about what kinds of co-op arrangements um, this ordinance allows. Totally, yeah. Um, so this, this ordinance was designed to enable three different types of housing co-ops. Um, there's the rental co-op model, so, you know, a landlord and a group of uh, renters. And then there's the nonprofit model, so the nonprofit owns and operates the building, and, um, and a co-op is a part of managing that nonprofit, so a co-op lives there. And then the third is a, a, like a shared equity co-op, so a group of us Get together and decide like yeah we want we actually want to live together and we want to buy a house together and um and live in it cooperatively and manage it cooperatively so it enables those three types which is um very exciting i'm glad that all three got in because they all have their special roles to play and they they really they kind of work together to form an ecosystem of housing cooperatives because mm -hmm. a rental co-op is relatively easy to start up you know it's it's no harder in a lot of ways than just renting a house with some other people. You know, obviously you need to do some organizational work to make sure that the group of people is actually going to be able to govern itself and work together. But as far as like, there's a lot of houses out there, many of them are five and six bedroom. If you can find land, let those up for it, great, you can go. You don't need $100,000 down. You don't need a grant from the city. You can just, you know, get together and do it. Uh, and the rental co-ops, because they're relatively easy to set up, are a great place for people to like, I want to try this out. I don't know if I really like it. I want to just give it a shot. And they get to have the experience of living in that kind of arrangement. And if they really like it, then there's a couple of, of paths, you know, that you can go forward from there. You could potentially decide we like this so much and we like each other so much and this is working so well that we want to pool our resources and buy a house and become a, a private equity co-op um, that's owned by the people that live there. 
or you know if, if you don't necessarily have the resources to do that um, you could work with a nonprofit like the Boulder Housing Coalition to say you know like we want to keep doing this but we we don't have the money to do it you know can we be part of this larger cooperative organization um, that can help find a house and you know if you're serving low-income people there's potentially sources of public funding that can help make that happen um, and that actually both of these have happened um, here in The market is not wide open by any means, but there's much, many more possibilities. Um, so the Boulder, we actually just uh, are under contract for a house um, to, to, to use the ordinance as the first nonprofit co-op in town. Um, and we're in a, a core group finding stage right now. So we're reaching out to find folks that all would be excited about living there and like forming the group and starting the like organizational process. So we're very excited. So if people are interested, uh, they can contact the Boulder Housing Coalition? Yeah, so we're we're actively recruiting new co-op members. Um, if you just go to boulderhousingcoalition.org, on the front page, there's some links to more information. Um, so we're gonna be having potlucks and kind of you know, workshops to kind of work through what it would mean to help found a new co-op. Um, but yeah, if you're at all interested in this kind of living, please go check out the website and um, we'd love to have as much interest as possible. Excellent. I know we've spoken a little bit about the organizational development, um, maybe more about the members mm -hmm. and um, the lived experiences. I'm wondering if you'd speak a little bit more about the operational development, um, a little mm -hmm. bit more about alternative financing models and uh, some of the nuts and bolts of the economy around cooperative mm -hmm. living. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I can speak to some of the, like the internal finance um, things, which I find really empowering because you know, so I live in a rental co-op, so we don't have the like finance um, issues around equity for the space, but we do entirely manage our own budgets and all that kind of jazz. And I think one of the most kind of empowering things about this process has been the economies of scale that we get at the, like there we have, I, I live with 11 people and our food, like our food and uh, kind of household projects and all of these things, they're so much more manageable from a per person perspective. And um, a bunch of the co-ops in town also have been pulling resources together and we just started a food co-op together. It was a, a, just a bulk buying um, club, which is very exciting. And that has dramatically uh, reduced our need for packaging and also dramatically reduced the cost for everyone living in the food co-op and in, in, in the housing co-ops to be able to like access affordable local foods. So it's very exciting because Boulder has not uh, historically mm -hmm. been able to maintain independent uh, food co-ops and out mm -hmm. of this housing infrastructure we're seeing an opportunity for people to find new ways of accessing fresh local food yeah and, and you know we're really excited about the idea like right right now it's really like you know i buy a 25 pound bag of oats for my house and we can go through that because there's 11 of us um and we're really attempting to grow slowly uh if at all like hopefully grow slightly <laughs> but um grow slowly so that we can be sustainable because you know as zane was referencing earlier we've had three or four food co-ops that have kind of uh lit up and flailed out so um, we're very excited about this yeah and i, I think the, the the roots of this bulk buying cooperative you know coming from an affordable housing context and people that are you know pooling resources in what is in many ways the traditional co-op mindset of like, look, we need to help ourselves be able to exist in this world and we can do that by working together. 
I think, I hope that this food co-op will benefit from that and keep overhead low and focus on, you know, affordable food access in a way that some of the previous food co-ops have have had trouble doing and they've just like jumped right to the cute storefront and wanting to be a grocery store and you know potentially taking on a lot of debt to make that happen and then that ends up being unstable and they crash and burn but we're we're going to grow slowly you know no more than we really need to to serve the members and try and keep our costs as low as possible and with that affordability mission in mind can you say more about uh, uh amy's question around financing uh, affordability in a community mm-hmm. where real estate costs are just so mm-hmm. through the roof, th- so out of reach for most people. How mm-hmm. is it that uh, that shared ownership and governance can become a vehicle for affordable housing in this market? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that the primary affordability mechanism is sharing. You know, instead of mm-hmm. needing to buy a third of a house, you can buy a twelfth of a house, which is four times cheaper. Um, you know, so that's just kind of the obvious immediate advantage of this. There are other you know, the collective ownership and management of these resources is an interesting kind of governance and collective action problem. So even in a rental co-op, you know, we have $3,800 that's down as a deposit on on our house, Pickle Brick. And um, the people that put that money in are not the people that are in the house now. And they're not the people that are going to be in the house when eventually we move out or it falls apart or whatever. So what happens to that $3,800 if we, you know, come to the end of pickle brick, who gets to keep it? It's, it's a collective resource. It doesn't really belong to any one of the individuals in the house. Um, so in our bylaws, we say, well, if there's money left over, we have to donate to a, a nonprofit to a 51 c 3 But I think that some version of this problem exists in many housing cooperations, even if the people own the house and you have this problem of turnover and transferring ownership to new people. And if you let the property appreciate as we typically expect it to in this market and many housing markets in the US, then, you know, it gets more and more expensive as time goes on to to flip those shares to new members. So a lot of housing co-ops, even if they don't have like a permanent affordability kind of public good in mind end up having limited equity so that you can't Mm -hmm. just you know the individuals don't accumulate all of the value there's some cap on the appreciation that makes it easier to to turn over shares over time yeah and there's you know because we're at the very beginning of this in boulder in terms of uh having legal uh shared equity co-ops there you know we've been doing a little bit we i did a lot of research during the um co-op advocacy process to just understand what are the different models for uh, shared equity and shared equity co-ops because like Zane was saying there's a bunch of there's a bunch of different ways to do it in ways that you can either very much cap the appreciation that members get or you can not Um, and this market these kind of kinds of questions are very important because even right now even share even a tenth of a house is Mm -hmm. in this town is inaccessible to me and a lot of folks that work here and live here so it's definitely interesting dynamics absolutely so i read something interesting um in city lab um, about a 21 million dollar regional equitable development fund for uh it's a coalition of private public and nonprofit partners who have uh, launched a permanent fund to support equitable affordable housing options um specifically they developed this because they noticed that a lot of the um, housing opportunities were uh, also not accessible to Mm. the emerging transit opportunities. So I'm wondering Mm. if you can imagine with me um, some of the other opportunities that the city of Boulder or uh, private partners in this region, given that we're in um, an area where there's access to incredible amounts of capital, wondering if you'll imagine um, what potentially could be the next steps for co-op living. Well, okay, so we, you know, the, the Boulder Housing Coalition as a nonprofit with a charitable mission to provide affordable housing has been able to access capital from the public, from the city, from the county, um, in the form of grants. And that's, you know, the down payment money. And the bigger the down payment is, the smaller the debt is, so the smaller the rent payments need to be. So the deeper the affordability you want from a public good point of view, the bigger the grant needs to be. But in a lot of these shared household arrangements, like um, Christina's especially, where people are sharing bedrooms, you, you have actually the ability to pay a significant amount of rent um, without it being a burden on the people that are living there. And that means potentially that you could get an equity-like investment from somebody, a patient capital investor uh, 
to cover the down payment money and be able to pay them a fixed return uh, and still be able to cover the the kind of normal traditional bank financed part of it. So we're actually we're talking with some people now about um, setting up a private uh, equity or subordinate debt investment fund to be able to cover the the kind of the down payment part of buying a new co-op and then we'd get traditional bank financing for the other 75% or whatever we need. So in in these cases, you know, you have enough ability to pay rent to cover the entire cost of the building, um, but you know, banks will only loan you 70 75% of the value of the the property that you're buying typically. Um, so you need to come up with that 25% somewhere. So we're hoping that we can work out, you know, kind of a an easy to use investment vehicle that people could help. You know, you wouldn't get your normal equity return, it'd be a patient capital investment. But um, if that's something that people want to invest in, it seems possible. And so you're just getting started. Mm -hmm. uh, where do you see this going in Boulder? Uh, what <laughs> will Boulder look like when the Cooperative Housing Co uh, Commonwealth has engulfed it? <laughs> I, I really like, this is a beautiful question because I think that's my, that's, this is what kind of fueled me through the uh, advocacy process. I, like Zane said earlier, like I don't think that Boulder will have tens of thousands of co-op co-opers by any means. Um, also, there is a cap of 10 uh, co-op permits per year, which is a limiting factor for sure. Um, but I can totally imagine, you know, in the full growth of co-ops in this town, having like 50 to 100 independent um, housing co-ops in town and that are and make this little ecosystem that you know, are a little bit more connected to each other than the rest of town just by nature of needing to be uh, a little bit more organized and needing to, and like resonating with the way in which um, that these other folks live. And I can, at that scale, there like there's so much, pos there's so many possibilities of, you know, ways to collaborate and things to advocate for and things to pour your time into and like ability to just to be a little bit more of an organized ecosystem for the vision that we all see for this town. So it would be lovely and interesting and very exciting. We're also looking at other types of cooperative housing. So this group, you know, shared household is just one type. And um, we're we're looking at doing a kind of an urban style co-housing community, which is cooperatively owned and managed. Mm -hmm. You could do co-op apartment buildings that are cooperatively owned and managed by the, the residents or in conjunction with the nonprofit. So there's a lot of other kinds of cooperative housing in the broader kind of universe that we are hopefully going to be able to get into. Yeah, and I'm really excited about the notion of having a bunch of different uh co-ops to just serve different types of people um you know there's there is one co-op in town that is uh for that has all folks that i think over 65 like my house is all you know 30 and under and you know if if there are more houses houses there can be more of a flavor of like this is the house for young parents and it can like grow up over time and you know this is the house for like the college kids that don't want to um live in the traditional like party setting and and that kind of jazz and this is the house for folks that are 65 and older and need some like more community and want to live in their want to like age in place and so i can imagine a good diversity of co-ops serving a bunch of different people you've been listening to the co-op power hour on kgnu's it's the economy a production of the colorado co-op study circle uh, you can catch us on the fourth thursday of every month <laughs> Welcome back to the Co-op Power Hour on KGNU's It's the Economy. This is a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. You can catch us on the fourth Thursday of every month. I'm Nathan Schneider, a scholar-in-residence of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, and my co-host is uh, Amy Lynn Herman. Uh, greetings, everybody. Uh, we've been talking quite a bit about um, the possibility for creating inclusive housing solutions for other categories, like people who are over the age of 65 mm -hmm. who'd like to age in place. I'm curious if we might speak a little bit more about the lessons from uh, your pr uh, work in developing cooperative housing, mm -hmm. how, uh, for example, a group of cultural producers or people in the arts might apply these kinds of housing solutions to their greater need for access to both housing and um, places to produce their work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'll chime in. I think that 
you know, if I could, if I could start over and like restart my house all over again, I would take more time before we kind of coalesced and moved in together, honestly, even though, you know, we all needed housing at a time, so I wouldn't have rewinded that really. But, um, I think especially if, if you're trying to have some sort of theme or mission, that's just, that's a little bit larger than just, we're going to share housing together and we're going to, um, do this democratically. Um, just take some time to really codify and solidify what your shared values are and what types of things as a house you want to work on. Um, So, you know, my house, we started really with like a social justice and environmental justice mission in in name. And we didn't take the time to really define that. And luckily we, we, thank goodness, we had really good models and like houses that were close to us that we could say like, we're not going to figure out our own special uh, meeting system right now or our chore system. We're just going to like adopt theirs for now and, and change it over time. So I think um, one, I think definitely spending time before you all really commit to figuring out why you're wanting to do this and whether or not there are some conflicting needs. Um, and then also like learn from other houses. Um, you know, as a part of the Boulder Housing Coalition right now, we're, we're certifying the new the new co-ops and we're, ha- we're having to do this training. Um, and it's been really fun to sort of touch base with co-ops that, especially the ones that already exist, about like, what are your systems? Um, tell me about your chore system. Tell me how you do finances. Uh, tell me how you run meetings and all this kind of jazz. And we're really trying to compile all of that information and make it accessible. Um, That's fantastic. And, it, and it's, it speaks to that way in which cooperatives uh, tend to call on us to recognize our strengths mm. you know and to and to uh, uh, draw on them in ways that we might not otherwise you know we're used to an economy in which we uh, you know dress ourselves up for investors <laughs> or, or for lenders and we expect them to provide everything that we need and then we uh, we in turn pay them back for it <laughs> rather than recognizing that maybe we have these resources among ourselves mm-hmm. uh, and it's not just locally. I mean, it, w- this is, uh, uh, these questions of affordability uh, are playing out, you know, around the country and around the world in different ways. How have you in your uh, uh, organizing drawn on lessons from outside of Boulder, uh, outside of Colorado, and, and how can the efforts that you've been building uh, connect with, with uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, folks outside of this area? Well, so there's a nationwide or North America-wide um, housing co-op association that serves this type of co-op that we're talking about called NASCO, which is the North American Students of Cooperation. And um, all the BHC houses and Picklebrick and The Beat and maybe Radish too are all members of that broader association. And they have a big educational institute every fall in uh, end of October or November when people from housing cooperative systems all over the country get together and share knowledge. And it's it's taught by the members, it's organized by the members with like a tiny bit of coordination from the like three staff people total that NASCO has. And it's it's really awesome to just get exposed to the things going on in different cities and people, you know, a lot of them are students, but it's not all students. There's a there's a big range of, of types of people being served. Some of them are permanently affordable housing, some of them are just community co-ops, some of them are rental, some of them are owned, some of them are owned by NASCO. Um, and that kind of like melting pot of ideas and experiences has been, you know, inspiring, especially last year um, <laughs> when NASCO happened right after the election and we all got to be despondent together. Uh, but also be like, look, there are constructive things we can do. Let's work together, at least in our little pockets, um, to do good things. Yeah, and I think you know we've definitely drawn on the work from other communities in terms of their housing advocacy in general. Um, you know, there, you know, there's a hundred stories that we were like, oh, this this type of thing worked in Austin for them to legalize granny flats, and like, it was all about for them like humanizing people that actually lived in these spaces. So we did a lot of work trying to uh, do that, and you know, also a few weeks before the second to final reading of the of the co-op ordinance in town in Boulder. Minneapolis passed a um, passed a co-op ordinance basically that was very um, straightforward and minimalistic about like here are the requirements here's his three pages of requirements versus Boulder's 23 pages of requirements and it really you know showing that there was that 
that group that advocated for that in Minneapolis and showing that, like, you know, this is what city council folks said about the ordinance, this is how the neighborhoods and, like, the community responded to it was a, a really wonderful way to make sure, like, um, that our elected officials um, attempted to make this as simple as possible. So that really helped. Yeah, and people um, have been watching from from mm-hmm. uh, outside as well. You know, when I was in Canada at a meeting <laughs> during the campaign, uh, I was approached by the the head of the Canadian H- Housing Cooperative Association who <laughs> asked how things were going in Boulder. You know, said it's oh, really wow. exciting what's happening there. And, yeah, you know, and, you when, know, so they're learning from from what's happening here. Yeah, when when at NASCO last year, I talked to a bunch of different people from a bunch of different cities that were like. You know, yeah, the housing co-op that I live in used to be four units, so there's 16 of us, but we could never grow, even though we have the ability and need to. Um, so, and th- I heard that story over and over and over again. And so a bunch of folks were kind of watching and excited about the process. And I, I would lo- I would love to see more co-ops um, be be legal in different cities. It's it's occupancy limits are. Uh, big barrier to co-ops in in a lot of cities across the country and it's the co-op ordinance itself and this like ability to share housing which means sharing land is is a tiny little microcosm of the bigger kind of fight around zoning as a way of regulating land use in cities in the u.s and you know what we got with the co-ops is a tiny, tiny little, very special case density bonus. Like if you're doing this kind of thing, okay, great, you can share the land costs across more people. But that kind of sharing is more generally prohibited or excluded from huge swaths of American cities through uh, you know, zoning regulations. And that's, that's a big part of the story of unaffordable housing in the US is that regulatory uh, cap on the production of housing. So I think this is one little entry into that much bigger and more difficult kind of policy discussion. I'm really glad that you mentioned uh, that saying regarding housing and it's um, cr- the crossroads that it meets with zoning. I'm curious mm-hmm. um, if you would explain how um, this housing ordinance might merge with other initiatives like community land trusts. Sure. So uh, community land trusts and cooperatives have a rich shared history. Uh, and. You know, especially the co-ops, the limited equity or zero equity group equity co-ops um, are very similar in terms of kind of collectivizing the land or, you know, the, the resource that's being shared and preventing that kind of speculative inflation in value over time saying, look, you know, this is not part of what people should be paying for over time. There's no, the increase in value isn't really due to anything that you know, you earned. It's just a property of a scarce land environment. And a community land trust is a situation where, unlike a housing cooperative, where the building itself might be owned or co-managed uh, uh, by the the residents. In this case, the land is shared um, the sh- or or held by a nonprofit, and residents might own their own houses on top of it, mm-hmm. but they're not able to buy and sell the land. Right? right. So we, I mean, it's a separation in ownership between the land and the improvements, and we have this idea about what it means to own a home and what housing is and who deserves it in the U.S., which is really just one way of arranging housing. You look at how housing works in Germany or Austria um, or the Netherlands, or historically, there are other very different ways of organizing land tenure and the rights of ownership and operation around land. And many of them are potentially much more equitable and accessible than the way we've chosen to arrange things here. And if I can, I, I think you wanted, Amy, to talk about like different kinds of housing cooperatives for different kinds of people. And in working with the Buller Housing Coalition and getting public you know, support to do housing, you know, the, mm-hmm. the public interest in providing affordable housing comes from a certain place. Uh, and in the U.S. especially, you know, of thinking that you know, there, are, there are people who need help and need support and you know, maybe we should do that in kind of a charity mindset. And that's great. You know, we should do that. Um, but there are other reasons one might want affordable housing that other than having no other choice. And I've struggled with this, you know, both working with the Boulder Housing Coalition to create that kind of charitable kind of affordable housing and also as an activist 
wanting to work on climate change, wanting to work on electricity regular, regulatory policy, and maybe not getting paid very well to do it. And that's a choice. You know, I have a, I have a geophysics PhD. I could go work for an oil and gas company. I could make a bunch of money, but I don't want to. I'm choosing to do something that isn't paid very well because I believe in it. And is that really something that the public should support? I mean, I could make that case if I wanted to, but co-ops give us the opportunity to support ourselves in these other unremunerated endeavors. And I think it's really important to give people the option of doing that, whether it's to create art or to start up a business without having to bring in VC capital so you can remain independent or because you want to do activist and political work that you're not going to get paid very well for, um, or, you know, God forbid, because you are a single parent and you just have to support yourself and that's challenging. Like these are all really good reasons to have affordable housing that's available. And if we can do it for ourselves without needing a, a pile of public government cash, you know, I think there's there's a broad applicability for that and when we should make it easy. Yeah, and I think you mentioned earlier that, Nathan, that um, that a lot of these, the co-ops enable us to uh, do good for our for ourselves as opposed to like putting on the face for investors or whatever. And I, speaking to what Zane was saying, really, co-ops when they're when they're allowed have the ability to make to say cool i i need to i need to make my housing costs this low because of xyz you know i found myself a lot during the advocacy process needing to explain to people why i needed to live so affordably which honestly like that's not really fair like i i have history and i have a future and i i really don't it's in some ways uh, it, it feels really icky and terrible to have to continually explain why you're worthy of living affordably. And, you know, I, I, I grew up uh, with my, my mom, especially was always struggled economically and she would never ask for help. Um, and she never like applied to programs that she was certainly eligible for because that feels like you're, it's just like a loss of pride. Um, and co-ops, at least for me, has given me the ability to say, I don't need to ask for help. Um, I can do, we can do it on our own, um, just with a sharing and, and the support of community. And yeah, it's a wonderful feeling, really. It reminds me of a, a, a statement made at that first city council meeting <laughs> that I went to uh, about the uh, about the occupancy limits, you know, where I first kind of saw the, the strength of the organized Boulder uh, co-op scene uh, uh, in force. And, and a, a, a woman said to the city council, you're legislating isolation. You know, what, mm -hmm. what an incredible line, you know, <laughs> what an incredible statement that, that, um, that the laws that are in place uh, over these communities affect control how people choose to live and mm -hmm. control their ability to uh, design lives that um, better suit their needs, you know, allow them to make these kinds of choices that you're talking about. Uh, and, and, you know, what you've done is, uh, is kind of unlegislated isolation, or you've, 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 you've helped legislate community. Uh, and, and that's an, an incredible achievement. Yeah, no, you know, I, for, we've, legislated community for a small number of people um which is very exciting for those small number for like those 10 permits a year those people that live in those houses are going to be incredibly affected by the ability to access those permits uh although i do think that a lot of a lot of boulders regulation in general legislates isolation and also re re legislates on uh ex expensive housing um on affordability in general and you know, we talk all the time about how we can pour, pour, we can find more money to pour into affordable housing programs. And really, in a lot of ways, we could be letting people choose for themselves to do the things that make housing more affordable, that we're saying, no, that's off limits. Great. Well, thank you so much, uh, Christina Gosnell and Zane Selvins. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, where can we learn more about what you're doing? <laughs> well, right How now, most of the involved? action is taking place at the Boulder Housing Coalition. We are certifying co-ops that already exist. So if you live in a co-op and you want to become legal and not have to hide from your landlord or the inspectors anymore, please go to our website, boulderhousingcoalition.org. Um, send us an email. We can help walk you through the process. Or if you're interested in living in a, a new house that we're setting up, 
same information there, boulderhousingcoalition.org. And if you want to reach out about advocacy, our, the, the advocacy group, the Boulder Community Housing Association, BOCHA, um, we've been a little quiet lately, um, but we, we certainly still have access and, uh, and certainly still take inquiries. It's Boulder Housing Coalition, oh, sorry, <laughs> the Boulder Community Housing Association.org. Um, and there's a Facebook page also. It's just BOCHA.org? It's, it's BOCHA-neighbors.org. Oh, yeah. uh, um, BOCHA is short <laughs> for Boulder Community Housing Association. But yeah, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. Um, yeah, get in touch. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. You've been listening to the Co-op Power Hour on KGNU's It's the Economy. This is a production of the Colorado Co-op Study Circle. Um, we've got one event planned coming up. That's going to be August 15th uh, at 6 p.m. It's actually on Governing Community Radio, and it's going to be held here at the offices of KGNU Boulder. Uh, that's, again, August 15th at 6 p.m. We're going to be talking with uh, some of the leadership at KGNU about what it means to run a community radio station, the kind of overlaps of that model with uh, cooperative enterprise and, and some of the directions that they want to take it. So if you're involved in KGNU, if you're a listener, uh, this is an opportunity to come learn more about the model and, and uh, participate more fully. And you can keep in touch and learn about our future events at uh, coloradocoops.info or on our group on uh, meetup.com. Again, you've been listening to the Co-op Power Hour on KGNU's It's the Economy. You can catch us on the fourth Thursday of every month. I'm Nathan Schneider. I'm a, a scholar-in-residence of media studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. Uh, I'm joined by my host, uh, my co-host, Amy Lynn Herman. And uh, we want to thank our guests, uh, Christina Gosnell and Zane Selvins. Thanks so much for joining us. Bye.